We're in this study of the book of Ephesians, and we're in the second half of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians breaks down really nicely into, into two halves. The first half, chapters 1 to 3, uh, Paul is talking about how in Christ, believers have been saved by grace, given a multitude of spiritual blessings, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and placed into a new community, the church, for the display of God's glory. Then in the second half of the book of Ephesians, chapters 4 to 6, if the first half is the believer's wealth, this wealth of, of riches we have in Christ, the second half is the believer's walk. Now, in light of, of all of that which God has given us in Christ, how are we to live our lives? How do we live as a part of this new community in order to display God's glory? So, in Ephesians 4.1, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, Paul says that he implores his, his readers to walk worthy of the calling with which they've been called. So, in verses 1 to 6 in chapter 4, uh, as Pastor Bob told us a couple of weeks ago, Paul was calling on people to walk worthy by pursuing unity in the body. And then last week, Pastor Tom walked us through how, how uh, Paul is calling us to pursue maturity in the body as an as a evidence of a worthy walk. And, and then in verse 17, where we're going to be this morning, he shifts his focus to walking worthy by pursuing godliness, and this is going to, to take up a lot of the next, the rest of chapter 4 and into chapter 5. So, he, he starts this, this section saying, this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. Now, here, Gentiles, this probably just means unbelievers. Remember, the majority of Paul's readers are probably Gentiles, and so when he's referring to the Gentiles, he's talking about those who, who don't know Christ. We might just say the rest of the world. Remember, he uses the, the word walk as sort of a metaphor for the way that you live your life. So, by saying uh, you must no longer walk just as the Gentiles walk, Paul is, is saying you, you can't live your life the way the rest of the world lives their lives. You can't walk a worldly walk. And so in verses 17 to 24, which is where we're going to be this morning, Paul's going to tackle two topics related to that command. He's going to expose the futility of a worldly walk, and then he's going to establish the foundation of a worthy walk. He's going to expose the futility of a worldly walk and establish the foundation of a worthy walk. So as we prepare to, to walk through this passage, no pun intended, I suppose, let's pray. Father, we thank You uh, for Your Word. Thank You that You have revealed Yourself to us that we might know You. Lord, we, we know that we cannot hope to to understand or obey Your Word unless Your Spirit moves in us to open our eyes and to incline our hearts to You. And so we pray that You would do that. Open our eyes that we might understand what You've written for us and incline our hearts to worship You, to be obedient to what You command, to trust what You promise, and to believe what You teach. 
And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, first, Paul is going to, he's commanded them, you must not walk like the rest of the world anymore. You must not walk like the Gentiles. And so, first, he's going to expose the futility of a worldly walk in verses 17 to 19. So, let's start there. This I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God. So first, he, he, he illustrates the characteristics of a, a worldly walk. He lists three of them. First, a worldly walk is futile. It's marked by futility sort of a, a summary description of the way that the world walks. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. How do the Gentiles walk? How does the world walk? They walk in the futility of their mind. It's emptiness, purposelessness. It's the same word that the author of Ecclesiastes uses to describe all of life when it's not oriented around God. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. The world walks in this, this purposeless emptiness and futility, which is to be contrasted with what Paul has said of Christians who are not empty but are filled up to all the fullness of God. So they walk in futility, and they also walk in darkness. They're darkened in their understanding. Paul says something very similar to this in, in Romans one twenty one, and incidentally, if you're reading this, this passage, sometimes the best commentary on Scripture is Scripture itself, and as we come to different things in this passage, I was very helped by looking at things that Paul wrote elsewhere, Romans 1, Romans 6, Colossians 3 are very helpful for understanding what Paul is, is saying here. In Romans 1, Paul's describing very, very similarly the, the way that the world lives. He says in Romans 1.21, even though they, Gentiles who don't know God, even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. And as they they couldn't see things the way that they, that they truly are. They're blinded to reality. This darkened understanding that characterizes the way that the world lives its life is not the result of an inadequate education. It's a result of an outright denunciation of God. As Paul says, they... They were darkened in their understanding because even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give Him thanks. They rejected God and so became darkened in their understanding. They were blinded because they rejected the God who enables them to see. That is contrasted with Christians who Paul has said in Ephesians are not darkened but those who, the eyes of whose hearts have been enlightened. Gentiles walk in darkened understanding. And then third, exclusion. 
They walk in the futility of their mind, they're darkened in their understanding, and they're excluded from the life of God. The life of God, just another way of talking about eternal life, the life that comes from God, true spiritual life. The world is basically the walking dead. They're characterized by a state of spiritual death, alienation from God, which Paul has already talked about in Ephesians chapter 2, where he said to them, you were dead in your sins and your transgressions. That's to be contrasted with, with Christians, those who have been made alive with Christ, those who were once far off and have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's the worldly walk characterized by futility and darkness and exclusion. And then Paul goes on and he he describes why. Why is the world characterized by this way of life? And he gives two reasons. He says they walk in the futility of their mind, they're darkened in their understanding, they're excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their heart. First, ignorance. This is not innocent ignorance. Like, I, I just didn't know. How could I know? I was, I was ignorant of that. This is culpable ignorance. Again, looking back at Romans 1 might be helpful to, uh, to help us see what Paul means here. Romans 1, Paul says that people suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made, so that they are without excuse. No one can claim innocent ignorance of God, because God has made Himself known. He's made Himself known to all people, and those people respond by suppressing the truth about Him in unrighteousness. It may not seem fair in, in some way. You say, well, but not, God hasn't revealed Himself in, in every way to, to people. There's lots of people who, who say they don't know God or they don't believe in God. Or, well, that doesn't mean that God hasn't revealed Himself. It'd sort of be like uh, the terms and conditions on a website, right? You go to use a website and you have to agree to their terms and conditions, and not one of you ever reads the terms and conditions, right? You say, oh yeah, I agree. I read this, sure, and you, and you click on. Now, if you were to have agreed to something that then you realize, oh, I probably shouldn't have agreed to that, and you were to complain to them, how would they respond? They say, well, you said you agreed. This was provided for you. This was revealed to you. Did you pay attention to it? No. Well, you're still liable for it. And it's the same way here. 
just because people don't pay attention to what God has revealed does not mean that He has not made Himself plain and does not mean that we are not responsible for responding to how He's revealed Himself. In this case, what the English poet Robert Browning said holds true, ignorance is not innocence but sin. People are ignorant of God because they reject and suppress what God has revealed about Himself. And even that is based on something deeper. It's based on the hardness of their hearts. Everything else is symptomatic of this underlying cause, this this condition of the heart. To the core, people have steeled themselves against God's rule. They've hardened their hearts in rebellion against Him. So cut off from life and walking in darkness, then we see the results of, of this worldly walk are callousness. If you look at verse 19, they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Ignorant of God, hardened in heart, darkened in understanding, futile in mind, they become callous. They're unable to recognize spiritual truth or feel spiritual conviction. And so they give themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity. This callousness of spirit leads people to willingly give themselves to what is false and wicked. The word sensuality here, uh, in, in, in the way that we use the word, tends to, we tend to only think about it in terms of sexual misconduct, but it's broader in the original language. It encompasses a lifestyle of unbridled licentiousness and immorality. We see that especially as Paul says that they've given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity. This is a rejection of self-restraint that leads people to do whatever feels good. You do you. But just because it feels right doesn't mean that it is right. And just because it doesn't hurt doesn't mean that it's not dangerous. If I have a a hand that is calloused, and I put it on a hot burner, I may not feel that my hand is being burned, but it's still being burned. The fact that I can't feel it doesn't mean that something dangerous is not happening, and that's what happens with our our spiritual lives. As people are calloused against what God has said, they will give themselves to do things that God says lead to death, and they will say, feels good to me. And friends, if you are doing something that is objectively contrary to Scripture and you can't feel it, that's a dangerous place to be. And Paul says it's characterized not just by callousness or the results not just in callousness or immorality, but also Greed, he says, that they've given themselves over for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. This describes how the immorality is practiced. They're greedy for it, never satisfied, always left wanting more. 
looking for the next act of self-indulgence. Sin never fulfills them. They continue to go back to it, though it only leaves them more and more empty, thus ending us where we began, futility, emptiness. So worldly walks characterized by futility, darkness, alienation, ignorance, hardness, callousness, immorality, greed, and will ultimately result in permanent exclusion from the life of God. You think, well, Paul, that's really encouraging. Thank you for sharing that with us. But he starts by saying to, to his readers, you can no longer walk this way. You can no longer live your life in this way. This is how you used to live. He said earlier in the book of Ephesians, he said, this is the way we all once walked, but you can't do this anymore. Now, we, we might expect him to explain then, if that's not how we're supposed to walk, then this is how we're supposed to walk. And he's going to get there, but not quite yet. Before he gets to the practical instructions about how Christians ought to live their life in contrast to the way that the world lived their life, he addresses why Christians cannot walk that way anymore. He establishes the foundation for a worthy walk. What we're going to see in verses 20 to 24 is that you as a Christian cannot walk like the world anymore because you have a new master who has given you a new identity and is renewing your mind. You have a new master who's given you a new identity and is renewing your mind, all right? So first, he's given us, uh, we've received a new master, verses 20 and 21. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as the truth is in Jesus. There's an emphatic contrast with what's come before. You did not learn Christ this way. Your situation is different now. He says, you learned Christ, you heard Christ, you were taught in Christ as the truth is in Jesus. Learned, heard, taught, truth. These are all school words. Or maybe more properly, they're all discipleship words. The, the word learning is very closely related in Greek to the word disciple. A disciple is a learner. Disciples are learners who follow a master. We've been enslaved to sin, but now in Christ we've been set free. But not set free so that we can be our own master, set free that we can joyfully submit to Jesus. Learning Christ, as Paul talks about here, is sort of an odd phrase. We usually learn about something. We learn content. Where he talks about learning Christ, he's not talking about just learning content. He's learning, talking about learning a person, something very personal. Uh, one commentator said, learning Christ means welcoming Him as a living person and being shaped by His teaching. And this involves submitting to His rule of righteousness and responding to His summons to standards and values completely different from what they have known. In short, learning Christ means becoming a disciple. 
becoming a Christ learner, coming under the authority of and swearing allegiance to a new master, Jesus, and following Him. So we have a new master. We're not enslaved to sin. We don't have to walk the way the world walks anymore like we used to. We used to not have a choice. We were dead in our sins and transgressions, and we've been made alive and set free to submit to Jesus. We have a new master, but before this new master gives us commands to follow, he first gives us a new identity. Look at verses 22 to 24. You were taught in Him that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now, there's a bit of a translation issue that I won't, I won't bore you with for, for, for too long, but particularly verses 22 and 24, the way that that the New American Standard Bible, which is the Bible that we read here, has it translated, it, it, it could be taken as what he's saying is, you've been taught to do this, right? You've been taught you need to lay aside the old self, put on the new self. The more work that I did on this this week, I, I I found that what, what Paul actually might be, be doing is, is saying something different, saying this is actually something that's already happened to you. It could also be translated, you were taught in Him that you have laid aside the old self and you have put on the new self. Because in verses 25 and following, he's going to say, uh, Lay aside this practice. Stop doing this. Put on this practice. Start doing this. And if we look at Colossians 3, Paul says something very similar. Colossians and Ephesians, very similar letters, a lot of parallels. Colossians 3, he says something very similar. In verses uh, 9 and 10, Colossians 3, 9 and 10, Paul says, Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. The basis for you putting aside the old way of life and putting on the new way of life is the fact that you have put off an old identity and you have put on a new identity. That when you came to Christ, the old you died. Paul says, not just laying aside like a, like a dirty pair of, of clothes. Colossians 3, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Romans 6, our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. If you're a Christian, when you became a Christian, the old you, the old you uh, uh, characterized by sin and death and corruption and condemnation was put off, died with Christ, and you received a new identity. You've put on the new self. 
a new creation, born again, made alive, and you get a new birth certificate, a new identity, one who is in Christ. The old self was corrupted. The new self is being created anew to be like God. The old self was characterized by lusts that sprang from lies and deceit. The new self is characterized by righteousness and holiness that springs from truth. Your old self died with Christ. Your new self has been made alive with Christ. And that's not just who you're going to be in the future, that's who you are right now. Therefore, you can't walk like the rest of the world. Why? Not just because it's not what you, it's what you shouldn't do, it's because that's not who you are. So we have a new master, we have a new identity, and we have a, that new master who's given us a new identity is also renewing our minds. Verse 23, that we are being renewed in the spirit of our minds. Again, the translation issue uh, remains the same here. It's not a command to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. It's a statement that you are being renewed in the spirit of your mind. The self is new, but the mind is in need of being renewed continually. So the, the verbs lay aside and put on, those are past tense verbs. Those are things that have happened in the past. But be renewed is actually a present tense verb. That is, you are continually being renewed in the spirit of your mind. And the mind needs to be renewed continually because even though you are new, living out of that new identity, is it always easy? Our identity is truly and permanently changed. We are blessedly, joyously, gloriously, irreversibly made new in Christ. But the old patterns of thinking still creep in, right? Or sometimes they don't just creep in. Sometimes they bust through the wall like the Kool-Aid man. Well-worn ruts in our minds and hearts channel our thoughts desires, behaviors, to patterns that characterize our old identity. You've been over those roads over and over again, and so it's hard to change those ruts. So sometimes we still live as if we were the old person, the old self, the old identity, even though that identity has died with Christ. And so we're in need of constant renewal by the Word and Spirit of God. Those ruts in our mind need to be paved over with the smooth asphalt of the gospel. This happens as the Word of God is, is taken in, as the Spirit of God applies the Word of God to reshape our patterns of thought, our desires, our actions to bring them increasingly in line with what is already true of who we are. And that's not just in your private Bible reading, though I would encourage you to do that. 
That's also as, like Paul said in Ephesians 4, it's as we speak the truth in love to one another. This is not only something that happens between you and Jesus. This is happens between you and those who also follow Jesus, which is one of the reasons that the church is so important. So what are the implications of what Paul is saying here, the futility of the world's walk and the foundation of a worthy walk? Well, number one, if you're, if you're not a Christian, if you're here and you're not a Christian, or if you're watching us online and, and you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, there, there are some of you listening to my voice this morning that those verses, 17 to 19, about the futility of the worldly walk those verses describe your life right now. You're living a life of emptiness. Your heart is hard toward God. You're excluded from the life of God. And if you die in that state, your exclusion from the life of God will be permanent and eternal. But as Paul has also taught In Ephesians, God is rich in mercy and abundantly willing to receive anyone who comes to Him through Jesus, that they may receive eternal life that is offered in Him. Those whose understanding is darkened can have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. Those who are excluded from the life of God can be brought near by the blood of Christ. Those who are walking in the emptiness of futility can be filled with all the fullness of God. And so, He calls you to come, to submit to Jesus, to turn from your rebellious, culpable ignorance, to trust in the death of Jesus in your place, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world to trust Him as the basis for the forgiveness of your sins, to swear allegiance to Him as your Lord and Savior. And if if you do, He will not only forgive your sins and cleanse you from unrighteousness, but He will give you a new identity. The old you dies. You're born again. And then He will renew your mind. If you're a a Christian, if you're a believer already, my guess is that, like me, you still struggle with all the patterns of thought and behavior in your life. But we are called to live differently. We can no longer walk just as the rest of the world walks. And that call to live differently is based upon this new identity that we have received from our new master. And so, Do you believe that you've been made new? Do you believe that you're not a slave to sin? Or do you still live as if sin is inevitable, that you can't help but sin? If that's you, then before you start trying to work really hard to stop sinning, you need to more fully grasp your new identity It has been given to you by your new master. We also need to remember that while we are truly new, we're not yet fully new. There's still work to be done, and Jesus is doing this through the renewal 
of our minds. So how are you committed to renewing your mind? Yes, we acknowledge absolutely that it is ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit who is, who is renewing our minds day by day, but we participate responsibly in this process. So, so what are you taking into your mind? Who are you being discipled by? Who are the loudest, most influential voices in your life? Is it the voice of the Master, Jesus? Or do you need to recommit yourself to an apprenticeship to Jesus over against the influence of those, maybe even those who claim the name of Christ but walk in the way of the world? What are some ways that you can commit yourself to the renewal of your mind, both through taking in the clean, pure water of God's Word and dumping out the sewage we so often consume and which so greatly shapes our attitudes and our assumptions. It doesn't have to be a big production, but it ought to be a consistent intake. Just eating a big breakfast on Sunday is not going to sustain you physically for a week, and just listening to a sermon on Sunday is not going to sustain you spiritually for a week. So how can you commit yourself to a regular intake of God's Word that the Spirit might use to renew your mind, to cause you to become who you already are? And then how can you commit to helping others renew their minds in the Word of God by speaking the truth of the gospel to one another? We all need to be renewed constantly by God's truth. As Paul said before, the body is going to grow into maturity as each part does its work of ministry among us. So we need each other in this. So who can you commit to and how can you commit to speaking truth to one another that we all might be renewed in the spirit of our mind and increasingly become more like Jesus, the master who bought us and has given us a new identity? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that though we were slaves to sin, we have been set free to be slaves to righteousness. Thank you that Jesus is our gracious Lord and King. Help us increasingly to submit to Him. And Lord, we do pray that you would work in us through your Word, by your Spirit, to renew our minds and thank you that we are irreversibly made new. Help us to continually live uh, and, and increasingly live in such a way that fits with that new identity. Lord, we trust that your word is powerful and that it will not return void. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.